From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. A few weeks ago, we did an episode on the fall coronavirus surge and its disproportionate impact on rural communities. But really, that doesn't tell the full story of what's happening in rural healthcare. So to continue that conversation, I've brought back health equity expert Darby Sullivan. Welcome back to Radio Advisory, Darby. It is good to have you on the podcast again. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. I think since the last time we spoke, you have maybe relocated outside of the city? Yes, I have. As much as I love the D.C. area where I'm from, when the pandemic hit, my partner and I decided to go west. So I'm actually in Utah right now, fittingly in a rural area. So that's been interesting as I've been doing this research. We're going to be talking about rural hospitals in this episode. What do we actually mean by that? How do we define what a rural organization is? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think a lot of folks operate from very different definitions of what they mean when they say rural hospital. Often folks are referring to hospitals that are how we traditionally conceive of as rural or remote or both. So those are sort of distinct things. Typically, rural areas imply, you know, it's a very spread out and a very sparsely populated area, whereas remote is a bit different. Remote areas, they could be rural, but they also could be just decent-sized towns that are still far from major metropolitan centers. So it's kind of interesting to talk about the distinctions, but really the major point is that when most folks talk about rural organizations, they're talking about hospitals that serve communities that are isolated or more distant from higher resourced areas. And so for today, we're going to be talking about those distant organizations that are kind of standalone. They're not associated with a larger hospital or larger health system. They are a standalone rural or remote institution. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, there are, you know, our rural hospitals are part of a larger organization. So, you know, the Intermountains or the UPMCs. And while they have similar challenges, the reason we want to focus on standalones today is because they're a lot more vulnerable to any error because they don't have that safety net built in. Let's talk about those vulnerabilities, starting with maybe what the state of rural hospitals was before COVID-19 hit. I will answer your question, but first I, I do want to make sure I start off by saying when we're talking about the rural healthcare issue that we'll be talking about today, It's not the fault of individual rural hospitals or rural hospital leaders who actually have done quite heroic things in order to try to keep care in their community. When we're talking about the rural healthcare crisis, we're talking about things that are impacted by population trends and policies that have led to a pretty devastating situation. Mm. So as you mentioned, these hospitals were in a crisis before COVID-19 over half or about half operate with negative margins and have been increasingly closing. Mm. Before COVID hit, 400 hospitals were at risk of closing, rural hospitals. And wow. since March, 15 have already closed. So things are clearly not good. And I do agree that it's maybe not the right answer to just sort of blame those rural providers. But what is actually happening that has gotten rural organizations to this point, this very dire point? Yeah. So like I mentioned, 
one of the major forces have been, you know, just basic population trends. So for the past 10 years or more, people have been moving from rural areas to urban or suburban ones. And, you know, from a hospital leader perspective, when your local population is shrinking, so do your volumes and so do your revenue. So now these rural hospitals are grappling with how to make their margins with fewer patients while their remaining patients actually represent a pretty challenging payer mix. Rural patients are more likely to be publicly insured, so covered by Medicare or Medicaid. They're more likely to be underinsured or uninsured entirely. So pretty mm-hmm. tough from a revenue perspective. But that's just one side of the margin equation. What's going on on the cost side? Yeah, it tends to be quite costly to care for a rural population who are generally more complex clinically and socially. So things are clearly a lot harder on institutions in these rural communities. But I also have to believe that at some point that extends to the patients in those communities as well. What disparities are we seeing in these rural areas? Yeah, it's an important question. And the first thing I want to mention is I think sometimes folks think rural health, it's a niche issue, but it's really not. About a fifth of the entire U.S. population lives in rural communities, and these folks are experiencing worse health outcomes compared to their urban and suburban counterparts across virtually every metric. So when you think about who is more likely to have multiple chronic conditions and behavioral health concerns, and who is more likely to die from the leading causes of death, so heart disease and cancer. And, you know, to some extent, when you're comparing the health between a rural area and an urban area, some of that is because rural areas tend to be older. But that's not the entire answer. Rural patients we've seen across all age groups tend to have worse health outcomes. If we do see it across all age groups, what is actually driving the disparities in outcomes? The most apparent answer is access to care. So because of the geographic spread of these communities, it's more challenging for patients to access the preventative and the specialty care that they need to stay healthy, in addition to the provider shortage that is occurring in rural areas. And while telehealth is growing as an option, and I think we'll talk about that more later on, there are still plenty of barriers to uptake for rural communities. So that's access to care. But I think you know, a primary part of this comes down to the inequitable impact of the social determinants of health. Uh, of course. I am not even really surprised that in, in a conversation with you, Darby, that you're, you're bringing <laughs> things back to social determinants of health. <laughs> it's hard not to. I, I think we've talked about this before on the pod, but we know that the social determinants of health can impact up to half of one's health outcomes, and that's compared to 10% for clinical care. So they have a staggering impact on health. And in rural areas, it looks like more limited opportunities for post-secondary education, limited jobs, much less ones that pay a living wage. And increasingly, the discussion is turning to the fact that rural areas lack access to broadband and internet. So all of these things can impact a person's ability to stay healthy. If I'm thinking in my head of who the patients are that are being served in these rural areas. I have to admit that I'm, I'm probably thinking of a stereotype, right? I'm thinking of maybe older, whiter communities, people that maybe work on farms and so on and so forth. Is that actually a, a true assumption of this part of the population? It's a common assumption, but it's not true. You know, it's important that we just talked about the disparities between rural and urban communities writ large, but we also have to realize that there's another layer to this as an equity issue. 
as you mentioned, folks pretty much instinctively think about working class white when they hear rural. But there are a significant number of communities that are predominantly black or indigenous or Latinx. And for these communities of color, all of the inequities that we just discussed are even more severe. And we've seen this play out with COVID-19. So when we think about the predominantly Black community of Albany, Georgia, that faced a really devastating surge back in March, when we look at how the Navajo Nation was completely ravaged in June when they had a surge, at one point they had the highest infection rate in the country and higher mortality than many states in raw numbers. And, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about outbreaks in rural areas that are coming from meatpacking plants. And these are you know, heavily staffed by immigrants and refugees. You just mentioned a couple of examples of how COVID specifically has been disproportionately affecting these communities. And I want to go a little bit deeper there. You've actually described the impact on rural hospitals as a tinderbox. How much worse have things gotten in the last eight months? Yes, we did describe the situation as a tinderbox, borrowing uh, a good phrase from the National Rural Health Association, but that was back in March. So unfortunately, since then, the tinderbox has caught on fire. And in the last several weeks, this recent surge has just thrown gas on the situation. Hmm. You've covered recently on the podcast where we are now, we're seeing the biggest surge that we've ever seen yet. And it's primarily impacting rural hospitals and communities. And I think it's important just to level set with our audience what a surge might mean in a rural market. I was actually on the phone with an organization earlier today that is a standalone community hospital. We were talking about COVID-19, and they were talking about how their clinicians were really struggling with a surge of 23 COVID patients in their ICU. And it just as a moment to remind people that It might not sound like a lot to have a dozen or two dozen COVID patients in your hospital, but that's actually something that can overwhelm a rural provider. Absolutely. That is completely consistent with what we've been hearing. So if that's the case, what should rural hospitals be doing right now to combat the surge that they are facing every day? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the good news is is that, you know, now that we're however many months into the pandemic, some of the problems that we initially were facing providers have been able to tackle. So for instance, for PPE, we've seen rural hospitals forming networks with one another or with larger providers to make sure they're able to scale up their supply chain and then distribute it across the network as needed. So that's been some improvement, but we see other issues still remaining, particularly having enough ICU beds and staff. I read last week that in North Dakota, hospitals are now at 100% capacity. And Mm. they just got permission from their governor to allow COVID positive staff who are asymptomatic to continue to work because they just have that much patient need, which I think is just a staggering step. It really is. In fact, I don't know if folks realize this, but that's actually something that happened in Belgium a couple of weeks ago, right around Halloween. And it happened just to the shock of the rest of Europe and certainly of America and so it's it's interesting that it's not just happening overseas, it's happening right here in North Dakota. Right. And I think rural providers are thinking about these drastic steps because they have to. Another one they need to consider is whether they're going to 
pause elective surgeries and for how long. This is going to be a really tough decision for them. Early on when state mandates were coming down, this was really hard on rural organizations because they have less of a financial cushion. And even if they never got a single COVID patient, they had to prepare as if they might without their biggest source of revenue. Hmm. This is really interesting. We had Christopher Kearns on the podcast two weeks ago and even last week, and we talked about the likelihood that lockdowns would happen again. And, and he sort of hedged thinking, hmm, it's probably something that's unlikely or, or would come at sort of a last resort because they're so deeply unpopular. But you're saying that to a certain extent that might not matter. Is that right? Right. I think you know he's probably right that state mandates to pause electives may not come back, but hospitals still have to make that call if they need to, not only for COVID surges, which they're seeing, of course, increasingly, but also to protect their capacity for non-COVID patients who for the past eight months have been avoiding care and now are much more acute. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Looking for more ways to connect with Ray and our other experts? To stay up to date on the biggest news and issues in healthcare today, follow Advisory Board on social media. There, you'll find resources for your team, our experts' latest blog posts, and information about upcoming special events. On Twitter, we're at AdvisoryBD. And we're on Facebook and LinkedIn, too. Just search for Advisory Board. So with all of this in mind, what is actually the near-term impact going to be on these hospitals? And perhaps more importantly, what can they actually do about it? The near-term impact is going to be a financial situation that's pretty tough to bounce back from. You know, some folks are looking to see if there's going to be any more aid coming their way. You and Christopher discussed the CARES Act a few weeks ago, and he's right when he said that it's done a lot across the board to sort of stave off the worst of the economic crisis. But, you know, I think when we think about how that funding was actually distributed, I think there's a strong case to make that it was not sufficient in meeting the needs of the most vulnerable organizations like rural standalones, especially when you consider sort of the balance between or the balance of funding for quite sustainable larger organizations with lots of cash on hand. An example I read is a rural hospital that said, yeah, this funding helped us cover payroll for about two weeks. So I think, yeah, so I think we're waiting to see whether, you know, will there be any more federal aid to sort of act as a stopgap? But in the meantime, hospital leaders are going to have to make really tough decisions. Like, are we going to furlough staff, which could have long-term repercussions in a place where recruitment and retention is traditionally challenging? So let's talk about some of those steps that leaders are going to need to take, maybe in the longer term, in a world where they can even meet the demands of the crisis that's right in front of them. Yeah, I think there is some good news, which is that the longer term strategies are things that rural leaders have been working on for quite some time, and they still really matter now. So those are things like how to figure out how to rationalize your service distribution in a way that both meets your community's needs to the greatest extent possible while also being financially viable for your organization. 
And the other one, as I mentioned, is recruitment and retention. That's been a traditionally really challenging task for organizations. I mean, it's very costly. And, you know, it's hard to call anything a silver lining right now. And while this is still an open question, it will be interesting to see whether there are more folks, maybe like me, leaving urban areas for more rural areas more permanently and whether that could make this traditional challenge a bit easier. No pressure. I won't ask you if you're planning to permanently relocate to Utah or if you are coming back to D.C. anytime soon. Like you said, I think those are all sort of the evergreen challenges. Maybe they have a new spin on them, like the recruitment piece that you were saying. But I'm curious, are there some new things that need to rise to the top of the rural healthcare leaders agenda? I don't think that they are new per se, but there is certainly an elevated urgency to getting them right. So for instance, when I think about partnerships, on the clinical and operational side, we have seen how partnerships between rural organizations and larger urban systems can be really mutually beneficial. So both sides can help each other share capacity as surges sort of shift locations. And of course, rural organizations benefit from greater access to things like rapid testing and supply chain. And I think the other partnership that's increasingly urgent for hospitals to get right is with community-based organizations, local Mm. public health departments, local businesses, what have you, especially as we are seeing a rise in the social determinants of health that I mentioned. How about telehealth, right? That seems to be top of mind for everyone. I I imagine it's also at the top of the agenda for rural leaders. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's long been seen as, wouldn't this be a, a lovely fix to our problems, but it's never been feasible financially. And I think that there is movement and there's some hope that it could be. There are still questions that remain to be answered about reimbursement in the long term. And folks who are going to have to really take seriously the questions of how to address the digital divide. But telehealth is more within reach than it ever has been before. You mentioned at the start of this episode that there are, what, 385 rural hospitals that are at risk of closing. And that excludes those that have already closed since the COVID pandemic. If they aren't able to do some of the things that you've described, whether it's the evergreen challenges or the ones that maybe have new prioritization, what actually happens? What happens if one of these hospitals closes? Yeah, it's an important question because I think we have to be really candid with ourselves about the possibilities given the scope of this crisis. There are really serious implications for hospital closures most obviously is the impact on access to care and outcome. With fewer options for care and with folks, particularly who have transportation barriers, some will avoid care longer until they can't anymore and until they're much sicker. And I actually recently saw a really fascinating data point that when a rural hospital closes, the local patient mortality rate jumps by 6%. Hmm. So that would be bad enough, but, and I don't think this is too dramatic to say, it can also spell the death knell for the local economy. So when rural hospitals close, there are really severe ripple effects across the economy. And that makes sense because when you think about it, these organizations are usually the primary employer in the area. They're a driver of economic growth. And that's because businesses, when they're looking for where to locate themselves, they look for whether there's healthcare nearby. So it's a really sought after resource. And research has indicated that for every one person hired at a hospital, half of the job is generated elsewhere in the economy. Hmm. And I think this is why this is truly a last resort, 
because it has such big ripple effects outside of even just what happens with the hospital. Maybe that's why we see the Intermountains and the UPMCs of the world saying we'll step in, even if it's not, you know, a strategic asset for us, it is something that is just too important to the community to lose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Darby, I want to thank you so much for having such a detailed but honestly, tough conversation about the state of rural healthcare. I sort of want to give you a moment at the end here to just speak directly to the leaders at those rural hospitals. What is your message for them right now? First and foremost, I would love to say thank you to leaders of rural hospitals. From what I've seen, you folks are remarkably resilient and resourceful, and you've already done so much with so little for so long. So what I would recommend for you all moving forward is that you have to be ready to tackle what might be the two most challenging mandates of your career at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's getting through this crisis, dealing with the surge in front of you, while at the same time, putting long-term solutions in place to become sustainable. How would you answer the question differently if you were to speak to the rest of the healthcare community? What I would say is that while recognizing that rural leaders have done remarkable things on their own, we can't keep letting them bear this burden alone. And with COVID-19, I think it's become clear now more than ever that our well-being is dependent on the well-being of everyone else in our community, especially the most vulnerable. So we have this interconnection. And when rural hospitals falter, urban systems are going to have to pick up the slack for patients who are going to be even sicker, even more remote than before. So this is a fight for the entire industry to take on. Darby, thanks so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There is a ton of urgency to act and honestly to act fast to protect rural hospitals. The consequences here are really dire. That's true for patients, for providers, and even for the community. If I'm honest, it means that emergency preparedness isn't actually enough to secure financial sustainability for rural organizations. So remember, we are here to help. Wait, I have one follow-up question. When you say rock, paper, scissors, do you go on scissors or do you go on, like, you go blank on space? Or do you go on shoot? shoot? Same. Okay. Rock, rock paper, paper, scissors, scissors shoot. Oh! Okay. That was a tie. So you continue. To clarify. All right. Yes. <laughs>